according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, this morning, we are in Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. We are about to uh, look out our window. For David's about to look out his window. At the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. All right, so that's what we have in front of us. We haven't quite reached this point yet. We're still tying together the last details from the introductory paragraph in verses 1 through 5. So I want to get right back to that and see if we can tie these things together and then uh, get our first look at Knucklehead as he, uh, pethy, I've been calling him pethy, uh, taking the noun for simple or naive and uh, just making it a proper name. The noun is pethy. I saw among the pethy and discerned among the, really the sons, instead of the youths, the benim, a young man lacking sense. Okay, know anybody like that? We have an applicable passage then. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to sanctify our thinking, to set aside distractions, to bless the uh, teaching of his word today, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We know that not one of us has earned or deserved this day or the teaching from this day. Father, all of this is your grace that's unfolding. We thank you for the grace blessings that are ours in Christ. And uh, now with him, you freely give us all things, Father, and that includes this message on this morning. So set aside distractions, take every thought captive, lead us into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in the midst of main point four, as far as we've taken it. Uh, Under point one, we saw how chapter seven fits in with the other exhortations in uh, Proverbs. It is the fourth and the longest of five discourses on fornication. And... uh, Took you through the previous ones in chapter 2, 5, and 6. And then, of course, one final one to come will be in chapter 9, the one that wraps up the parental wisdom section. We're taking chapters 1 through 9 as a unit. And uh, that ninth chapter is the conclusion to the overall parental wisdom portion of the book of Proverbs. And uh, the final segment of that chapter is the fifth and final admonishment against fornication. Secondly, treasuring the word of God as we see it here. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Treasuring the word of God is a study that we did back in chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2. And so I just copied and pasted those very same notes that we gave you in chapter 2 and given it to you again here in chapter 7. Treasuring the word of God means I place it in a particular location, both guarded and regarded. And the verb, the Hebrew verb is tzafan, number 6845, with uh, 31 Old Testament uses. And uh, I think we've covered that sufficiently, and we understand the blessings of being able to treasure the Word of God the way that uh, the psalmist did in Psalm 119 and verse 11. Thirdly, we took a look at this expression, the apple of your eye. It says, keep my commandments and live and keep my teaching as the apple of your eye or the pupil of your eye. Um, What this means is that the object that is the special object of your attention is uh, a particular place of observation and affection. In other words, this is something that you enjoy looking at (laughs) and you, you gaze upon it fondly. And it is uh, something that you deliberately spend some time staring at. You find it attractive. You find it pleasant. You find it uh, 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 wonderful. And it's not something that you uh, that your eye turns away from 
because you're busy looking at something else. Okay, and you don't keep it at your peripheral vision. Uh, you keep it at the center of your uh, observation and affection. And as far as the Old Testament reveals it, we should keep the Word of God this way. God keeps us this way. Particularly the nation of Israel is kept this way as the pupil of the eye of uh, Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. He keeps the Jewish people, Israel, as the apple of his eye. And so if the Gentile nations start to pick on Israel, they start to persecute Israel, then Yahweh Elohim will warn them, uh, careful now, when you mess with Israel, you're messing with the apple of my eye. See? And uh, it's the protective nature there. The imperative to live, which I uh, appreciate, it is both an imperative and a consequence of all these other imperatives. It says, keep my commandments and live. That's an order, all right? Live, it is both an imperative and a consequence of all these other imperatives. When you look at these, keep my words, treasure my commandments, keep my commandments and live, keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, call understanding, All of those are the imperatives of this opening paragraph. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Do you speak to wisdom? Do you fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, even as you fellowship with his written word? That's what we're speaking of here. When you say to wisdom and call understanding your intimate friend. Again, uh, the imperative here is, is verbal on our part. We should speak and we should call. So say to wisdom and call understanding your intimate friend your closest kinsman. If wisdom and understanding are not your closest kinsman, if there's a closer kinsman to you, that's a problem, okay? The, word, the term here is the term for kinsman, such as in the book of Ruth, such as Boaz, who could not take Rahab, or could not take, I'm sorry, um, Ruth first. He, he had to offer the, the possibility to that closer kinsman. And thankfully, of course, for Boaz's sake, the closer kinsman said no, all right, like a moron. He passed on, on marrying Ruth. And so now Boaz was able to marry her because there was nobody closer once that one guy was, uh, you know, the guy with the shoe off and getting spit on. That, that guy um, was out of the way. Boaz becomes the closest kinsman at that point of time. And so uh, call understanding your intimate friend uses the same terminology and expression there that the Word of God better be our closest kinsman. If there's, a, if there's a closer kinsman to your soul than the Word of God, that's a problem. Different uh, applications there. All right, I do like the different body parts that are in this uh, aspect here. Your fingers, your eye, the tablet of your heart. Because we have different uh, sensory inputs. Eye, fingers, and hearts must interact with truth. And it's not just ears to hear. All right. The, the Bible uses many of our body parts for sensory input metaphors. And if your soul has eyes, and we know it does, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Uh, your soul has ears, we know that it does. He that has an ear, let him hear. Your soul has a nose, and we know that it does, because we should smell the uh, sweet fragrance of the aroma that we are from life to life. Uh, your soul has uh, a mouth and a tongue, a palate, All of these are expressions in the Old Testament that are used as metaphors, anthropomorphic metaphors to communicate the fact that our soul is able to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, all of that. All right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. So uh, we have all of these sensory inputs, all of this interaction with truth. Ears and nose and mouth are also presented as sensory receptors to the written and the living word. And, and really, I love this because this is, the, this is the language of babies. This is the language of infants. Scripture commands us to, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word of God. So we should be infantile, right? Or um, we want to be, I taught a class once years ago called childlike, not childish, <laughs> okay? And we want to be childlike in our faith. We don't want to be childish in, a, in an immaturity you know, problem. Um, but we do want to be childlike in the simplicity of our faith. And to be childlike 
as uh, in terms of, of learning the Word of God, it's more than just listening. It's listening, it's looking, it's smelling, it's tasting, it's feeling. And uh, I tell you, every, you got triplets, you got grandchildren, you know what it's like. Babies, just first thing they want to do is just look at something and stick it in their mouth and see what, you know, see what it tastes like. And that's what we should be doing with the Word of God. All right? Stick it in your mouth. See what it tastes like. Chew on it for a little bit. Swallow some of it. Okay? All right. This intimacy, sibling and kinsman intimacy with the Word of God protects the believer from harmful, fallen intimacies. All of the damaging intimacies that take place if you are unequally yoked, if you are pursuing uh, relationships on the wrong basis, with the wrong motivation or the wrong people or for the wrong reasons, in the wrong ways. You know, think of everything that can go wrong. <laughs> and any one of them that goes wrong makes the whole thing wrong, right? But the wrong person at the wrong time, in the wrong way, for the wrong reasons, uh, the wrong activity or the wrong, I mean, there's a lot of things that can go wrong with that. And so it says, uh, say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend, your closest kinsman. And we want to build and foster the right kind of intimacies, the right kind of relationships. And that it says that, purpose clause or result here, that they may keep you. Who may keep you? Your sister will keep you. Your kinsman will keep you. Your close family will keep you from the adulteress, from the strange woman, the foreigner who flatters with her words. The intimate relationship with the, with the sister, the intimate relationship with the kinsman redeemer, the close friend, that is a, is, a, is a protection against these false, harmful, dangerous, fallen intimacies. All right? And in many respects, they are absolutely crucial, I believe, when you develop the, to develop the, the non-sexual relationships that, that are so important before you get to something as complicated and dangerous as a sexual relationship, as marriage, I should say. And so you learn the purity with your sister. You learn how to tend her soul. You learn uh, the, 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 the way, best as any man can, you learn the way that a girl thinks, okay? Again, as best as a man can. And you learn, you learn how to relate to a, a female. And, but there's the purity there because she's your sister. And there's no other motivation at work. And there's no other emotions at work. That's creepy because she's your sister, right? And so you love her and you protect her and you care for her and you want her to grow. And in that purity then of tending her soul, what's happening is you're being equipped for your wife. You're being equipped for the proper uh, relationship with, with a woman that will, not only do you have to shepherd her soul, but then there's the bodily things that come as well in the... Uh, marriage context. All right. And so start where you should start in, uh, in this regard. See, God is not stupid. God knows what he's doing. And he's designed marriage the way that he's designed marriage. And he's designed children the way that he's designed children. And to nurture the next generation in the home from the parents until they are prepared then to leave father and mother and to cleave to one another in, uh, in their own generational accountability. All right, this is related back to chapter 4. We had a similar principle that was there in verses 6 through 8. Again, the right kind of hugging, the right kind of embracing. It says, uh, Proverbs 4, 6, Do not forsake her. Let's see, even prior to that. Verse 2 says, I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son on the side of my mother. This is, uh, these are Solomon's childhood memories. And remember, the older brother died. The older brother died because of the adultery and the murder of, of Uriah. And, and so then Solomon then is the firstborn, the oldest of, of the, the f- oldest of the ones that survived. And you can imagine that this is the, the time of David and Solomon and their spiritual recovery tender and the only son on the side of my mother. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget or turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. See, something that's very harmful is the uh, abandonment in relationships. 
the abandonment of, of a wife uh, in divorce, the abandonment of a child in, in, uh, in that, or any, any abandonment. It's a, it's a problem, it's a fear in, uh, in a woman's existence, and it's a terrible evil in a man's villainy when he does such a thing. But the, the, the picture here, though, is the, the picture of the Word of God, that uh, to abandon the Word of God is, is like being faithless to a spouse, being uh, faithless in, uh, in this relationship. So do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her. Prize her. Does she know that she is the, the uh, priority in your life? Does she know that, that she's number one? Prize her. Well, the Word of God better know that she's wor- number one in your, in your life. And she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Okay? And then we can do some Hebrew studies on uh, embracing and caressing and touching and some of the other uh, physical expressions of, uh, of affection. All right? But see, the positive indication here is if, if our children are hugging the right things, <laughs> then we're not so scared about other things they might be hugging, all right? Or boys or people or things of that nature, all right? Because they are intimate with the Word of God. Their soul is adjusted properly to, uh, to these things. All right. The uh, Song of Solomon 8.1 is a little bit awkward too, but the, the, the girl there is singing, oh, I wish you were my brother. <laughs> if I wish you were my brother, if you were my brother, then we could hug and no one would think it was uh, improper. <laughs> and, uh, but you're not my brother and we can't be hugging and, and there's other issues there too. All right. So we want to develop the right kind of intimacy. Point C, revive me. Revive me. You know, the order to live, when God commands you to live, the neat thing about it is that what requires, what's required of us to do to obey that command is to let Him revive us, right? Because can, can we cause our own life? <laughs> can we, we can't, right? None of us causes our own life uh, in, in terms of procreation. Our parents did that, and here we are. We didn't ask them or request anything, okay? Um, but but life is provided, but uh, and so the imperative then to live, live the abundant life, live the true life, live in the Word of God, abide in the Word of God, which is what Jesus describes, is this true abundant life. But then ultimately the command to live means, it's like the command to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you in the sense of a passive imperative, let it happen. Allow God to revive you because that's what His Word is designed to do. So in order to obey the imperative to live and obeying these other imperatives, which, which makes living a consequence, is to be in agreement with the psalmist in Psalm 119 where he orders God again and again and again, I think nine times total, he orders God to revive me, make me live, make me live. And, and I don't know, maybe it's, it's a poor illustration to this, but it's almost like... Uh, taunts on a playground you know and someone says whatever and then the kid comes back with well make me (laughs) right um all right well god says live and so we come back with make me (laughs) make me live revive me revive me in your word And when you go through all these verses here, let's look at these real quickly and then we'll gain new ground this morning. Psalm 119. I know we covered this a week ago, but um, I don't think I stressed how God commands us to do this and yet God's the one that makes this happen. If we live in the Word, if we dwell and remain and abide in the Word of God, then He will cause us to live. The consequences of being a disciple are this abundant life. All right, so Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. If you're not living in the word of God, then how will you be revived in the, uh, when the, the, the dust-cleaving circumstances of life present themselves? Verse 37. 
Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. The psalmist is telling God to revive him and to keep his eyes locked where they need to be. Lord, they don't need to be looking over there. They need to be looking right here in your word. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity. Verse 40, um, behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. God does all of this. He orders us to live, but the real revival comes as God works in and through us in his word. Verse 88, revive me according to your loving kindness that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. He commands us to live, but he's the one that does the reviving. Verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. And uh, again and again and again, all of these are saying much the same thing. Verse 149, hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. And you'll note in almost every one of these applications, it's not just academic study. It's not just a believer who's in Bible class, who's learning information, but he's under testing. He's in conflict. He's making application and he's engaged in a, in a fruitful prayer life. I don't think that's an accident either. Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Verse 156, great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. You know, if if you find that you're not fond of testing, just consider that it's only under testing that God can show the mercy that he shows to you. It's only under hardship that he can show you his faithfulness in, in, in quite this way. Without the conflict, without the adversity, without the tough things, how does he show his mercy? How does he show uh, this, this revival capacity that he does? Finally, then verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. And so there it is. He commands us to live, but ultimately, For us to obey that command, we need to be abiding in doctrine. We need to be calling upon him to cause us to live. uh, We should be uttering these revive me imperatives. God, you want me to live in your word? Cause me to live. Revive me. Revive me. Point D. Living in the word of God is what Jesus spoke of as the abundant life for true disciples. So let's turn to John 8 and see Jesus' message here. I think it's in complete agreement with Psalm 119. It's in complete agreement with Proverbs 7. Is John 8, 31 through 38. Living in the Word of God is what Jesus spoke of as the abundant life for true disciples. John 8, 31 through 38. Living in the Word of God is what Jesus spoke of as the abundant life for true disciples. People got all these ideas of what is the abundant life, and many of them are not even close to biblical. <laughs> There's different mindsets that are out there, worldly ways of thinking. Because if you're not transformed by the renewing of your mind, you're going to be conformed to this age, and you start to adopt the philosophies of this age, the mindset of this age. You start to feel like, well, in order for me to have any meaning in life, then I must, uh, I need to be financially comfortable. I need to have a nice home. I need to have a, a retirement uh, nest egg. I need to have, I need to put my kids through school. I need to have, uh, you know, just a long list of stuff. And everything they list that gives meaning to, to life in some kind of quality of life um, this couldn't be further from what the Scripture reveals as far as abiding in the Word of God. See, any church-age believer can have this abundant life and is expected to have this uh, abundant life and has nothing to do with their tax bracket, has nothing to do with their uh, income. All right, so Jesus, and I think sometimes they confuse it with quality of life. They confuse it with, uh, with different aspects of, you know, um, anyway, let me get off of that topic. Verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, that's so huge. Before you handle anything else in the following paragraph, understand why that's a hinge from what came before, the conflict of what happens here in chapter 8. He's revealing himself as the light of the world. He's speaking about those who walk in darkness. 
So go back to verse 12 and, and, and spot that. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Speaking of darkness, so the Pharisees said to him, <laughs> okay, and here they are. He's preaching about the light of the world and they want none of it. They're angry. You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're a bunch of liars. He's not, even if he was testifying about himself, he knows what he's talking about, but he says, I've got plenty of other testimonies and you're going to listen to any of them. Okay? You, you, you rejected John the Baptist. You beheaded him. You, you're rejecting the scriptures of the Old Testament. You're ignoring what my father has to say. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. <laughs> For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you guys do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You're in the darkness and you don't even know it. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. You're judging me. Anyway, so he talks about his father. Uh, I am not alone in my testimony. My father but I am my Father who sent me. I am He who testifies about myself, verse 18, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And you're ignoring both of us. So they were saying to Him, where is your Father? <laughs> All right. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So, um, anyway, there's a lot of conflict in this. There's some more back and forth. I'm going to skip on down. But you'll notice how clueless they are. In verse 27, they did not realize he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And it's interesting, there was a consequence of the cross that led some to, uh, to understand who he was. And it finally put two and two together. And after the ascension, there were more they started to figure out. And then after the preaching of Peter, there were more. All right. And he who sent me is with me, has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And that's key. Because that's what he does with his father, but that's what they're doing with their father. And this conflict lays it out here in John chapter 8. You are of your father the devil. You want to do the things that are pleasing to him. So we're really not that far apart, are we? We're kind of alike. I want to please my father. You want to please your father. That's why I'm living in the word of God. And that's why you're a, a, a brood of vipers. <laughs> okay. So as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And verse 30, um, not my opinion, it's the Holy Spirit record that there are folks that are coming to faith in Christ because of this preaching. And that's who he then turns to. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, all right, salvation is not the end of the will of God for your life. It's step one, but you're not a disciple yet. And the Great Commission doesn't make disciples. The Great Commission isn't get people saved, okay? He was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you menow in my word, continue, abide, remain, or dwell. If you menow in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. I think menow is the first Greek word I ever learned. And I think even before I had a Greek class, I opened up a grammar and I started looking at words. I started looking at vocabulary lists. I started looking at things. And menow was the first, I don't know why, menow stuck with me. And then I went to Desert Storm and my first sergeant and I, we, drew, we named our, our Humvee, we named our Humvee menow. All right, to abide, to remain, to dwell. And then uh, we crashed Menno and we named a second Humvee, Menno II. <laughs> All right. Um, but to continue, to remain, to dwell, this is the place that you stay. It's not the place that you visit occasionally. It's not the place that you, you, know, you, you, you resort to this place as a place of refuge, as a last resort when you've tried everything else that didn't work. All right. This is where you inhabit, you remain, you dwell. This is where you belong. This is where you're at home. Okay? That's not, uh, so for me, it's, you know, here. <laughs> Austin Bible Church, this is my home. Uh, I, I visit other churches occasionally, but I don't dwell there. I don't remain there. This is where I, I dwell, remain, abide. This is where I fellowship. This is the flock. Okay? I see, some people don't keep treat the word of god that way 
They, they basically dwell in the world and then visit the Bible every so often. It should be the other way around. We should be so saturated with the Bible that we have to remind ourselves, oh yeah, there's a fallen world out there somewhere. <laughs> okay? Oh yeah. I forget how those worldly people think. If you continue my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. The, the mechanism for being a disciple is not being saved. The mechanism is living in the word of God. Okay? Now you, you understand that you have to get saved before you can abide in the word of God. It is a prerequisite, but it's not automatic. There's no unbeliever that lives in the word of God. But sadly, there's a lot of believers who don't. A lot of regenerate Christians, they'll be in heaven when they die, but they're not abiding in the word of God today or tomorrow, or yesterday, or as a general rule, it doesn't characterize their life. They're thorny ground, they're stony ground, they're not good soil. So if you continue my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's not an equivalent statement to salvation, that's an equivalent statement to discipleship. Knowing the truth and letting the truth free you from sin, which we see in the larger context here is what this is dealing with, the slavery to sin. Verse 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. And it's not about the penalty of sin. It's not the wages of sin is death. It's not the, uh, the bondage to the slave market of sin that the unbeliever has. No, it's the, it's the sin activity, the ongoing sin activity that every believer struggles with like every unbeliever struggles with. But we have the word of God that can rescue us from that. Receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls, we're told. The word of God, as you live in the word of God, will rescue you from those temptations. All right. It goes on. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you, you know, except for the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the, and the uh, Hittites and the, yeah, the Amorites and the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Romans and the Persians and the Greeks. Other than that, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Okay? See how delusional these morons are? And even when they say this in 33 AD, when they're speaking this to him, 32 AD, 33 AD, this is the, either the fall or the winter of uh, 32, 33. All right? And even when they're saying this, they are under Rome's thumb. They have a governor named Pontius Pilate that's not a Jewish son of David on the throne of David. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, he answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. When you are out there in carnality, you're not in charge. You have submitted to your sin nature. You have bent the knee to your sin nature. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. There's a contrast. Do you want to be a slave? Do you want to be free? Do you want to walk in the airship you have in positional truth? That's what we're talking about when you take a positional truth reality and you live that in an experiential uh, truth basis. See? So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And free indeed is a nice, or truly free, or free indeed is a nice parallel to truly disciples or, or disciples indeed. Okay? You really want to tear apart the expressions there. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because the word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things that you heard from your father. Well, this is the abundant life. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. It should be spent living in the Word of God. What else is there? Okay, You want to you spend your life uh, saturated with uh, uh, sports? You know, absolutely just saturated with, with um, football or basketball or baseball. Of course, the off-season now for baseball, so... Um, that's dead until next spring when that can be resurrected again. But, but there are people that live baseball year-round. And so what's going on right now? 
winter meetings, ooh, and and possible free agent signings, ooh, and who do you think, uh, you know, who do you think the Mariners might go after? Well, who cares? They're going to finish in the basement anyway. Doesn't make a difference. Oh, come on, they got a new coach now. They got a new uh, general manager, and there's things are looking up. They're going to get Edgar Martinez for a hitting coach. Oh, wow. Okay, you do a lot worse than Edgar Martinez for a hitting coach. Okay, probably the greatest hitting designated hitter ever should be in the Hall of Fame. Okay. And people live this stuff. And not only do they know what's going on, they know what's going on today. Today, so-and-so is meeting with so-and-so and they're going to talk about such and such and maybe you know, they, can, they can ink a deal before, before next spring. And they've got to have this deal today because tomorrow he's talking to this other person. Right? Or football. Football. Who's leading the division? Who's got the wild card? Uh, what are the possible matchup matchups in the in the uh, playoffs? The latest injury report. Do you see who's out for the season? Man, he was supposed to he was supposed to follow um, Rawls. Was supposed to follow Lynch, but now Rawls is out for the season. When do we get Lynch back? What in the world's going to happen to the offense if the running game's not on track? And they're living this stuff. They're living this stuff day after day after day after day. You can start a conversation and boom, the next 20 minutes is consumed with all the minutia of everything. And yet, turn to a passage in Scripture and see how, how that conversation goes. <laughs> can they spend 20 minutes in, in, a pass, in a text? Well, you find out quickly where the heart is. Where are they living? Where are they dwelling? Where is their mind consumed by versus other stuff that they haven't really thought about for a while? Okay? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about dwelling with the Word of God. The abundant life we should have in Christ. So, now we get to look, let's get back to Proverbs 7 then. Keep my commandments and live. You want this uh, abundant life? You want to be living in the Word? You want wisdom to be your sister and understanding to be your intimate friend? There it is. And and think about Jesus never had this, not with his own siblings. Not with his own siblings. There's so much that we, um, and and, and it's kind of interesting, in Isaiah, this week and next, we're going to have some things that are going to connect with Proverbs, are going to connect with the book of James. They're going to connect with the Lord's message in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and you just think, wow, Jesus was really impacted by Isaiah. Okay? <laughs> well, duh, half of Isaiah is talking about him. So yeah, I think he'd probably pay attention to that book. But So Jesus is, is, is impacted by Isaiah and that's reflected in his, in his messages as recorded in the Gospels. James is impacted by Isaiah. And it's impacted in his writings in the book of James. But then it finally hit me like a two-by-four when I thought they were, they were siblings, but they were never able to fellowship over that growing up. How Isaiah affected Jesus, how Isaiah affected James... But not while they not together, not while they were growing up, because James was not even saved until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His brothers weren't even believing in him until after the resurrection. And so, you know, I can imagine all of a sudden Isaiah becomes powerful for James and Proverbs becomes very powerful for James and starts to shape James' salvation but by then jesus is already resurrected and ascended and seated at the father's right hand by the time he finally gets to start to cycle the doctrines of isaiah and proverbs and and all of that and i can't imagine when he finally when the holy spirit comes upon him and he starts to write the book of james (laughs) that it must have crossed his mind at some point man if only i'd have been saved younger if only i'd have been saved as a kid because my Savior, I grew up in the house with Jesus. <laughs> what could I have learned in those younger years? But he never did. Because he was knucklehead. James was knucklehead. He was pethy. He was a young man lacking sense. And yet very religious. They went to Passover every year. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem every year. 
there was no shortage of cousins and hangers-ons. And in fact, there were so many in the extended crowds, they lost Jesus one year, <laughs> right? At the age of 12, he, he stayed behind in the temple. And they thought he was with the family, including James and Jude and Simeon and Joseph and these guys. And, um, yeah, they were very religious. And yet, uh, this is what he sees. All right. At the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, and I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. He takes the way to her house. So he's in the wrong part of town, the wrong time of day. He's going somewhere, coming back from somewhere that he never should have been, right? Like a Garth Brooks lyric or something. He's, uh, he's coming back from somewhere that he never should have been. And, and David's watching this. And he's watching this guy. And it's more than once. You know, how many times do you got to see the same guy when you realize, wait a minute, that's the same guy. Why do I keep seeing this guy? He's always on the same corner. What's he doing here? All right. And David, of course, is no stranger to looking at things he shouldn't be looking at. He had his own failure in that regard, looking off the roof and seeing Bathsheba and having his mind where his mind was not supposed to be. Now he's looking out and he sees, he sees himself in this young man. All right. So unique, point five, unique to this admonishment is the story narrative of what David could see from his window. It's a story narrative. And I don't think it's a parable. It's not addressed as a parable. I mean... Maybe, well, but I just don't see the parable in this. I think it's it's something he literally saw, okay? And uh could be wrong. I'll get to heaven and find out. No, it was a work of fiction. But it seems that out of the window of my house, I looked and I saw. And I'm, I'm watching this petty. I'm watching this knucklehead, this naive, simple young man who should have known better. Well, I don't know, maybe it's a narrative, maybe it's a maybe it's a, a parable. The words are quoted. Was he able to hear the conversation between the woman and the man? Says he heard it. All right. Whether it's true or not, okay, and I think the Lord could have given David the eyesight to see it, the hearing to hear it, the uh the whole thing could have been played out, and it could have been played out prophetically if nothing else but specifically the window is mentioned the lattice is mentioned so i think it's real and i think it's nice that uh this is something positive that david is learning from and using to instruct his sons uh because otherwise all we got is david up on the roof staring down at naked women taking baths (laughs) okay here's something positive he's not on the roof but he's looking out the window and he sees something and immediately he knows it's a problem I expect that David became an intercessor, started praying for that knucklehead. Didn't help. Knuckleheads still made the mistake, but um, there it is. He's going to use that to teach his own sons about the trouble that's out there. And it's unique. None of the other parables, none of the other chapters, okay? There's a little bit of storytelling maybe in chapter 5 where he talks about sticking a torch in your shirt. You know, but even that is more um, hypothetical than narrative. That's like a rhetorical question: Who who has ever stuck a torch in his shirt, in his bosom, and not been burned? Can a man stick fire in his bosom and not be burned? No. Well, then, so it is with adultery: You will be burned. You will pay the price. But all of the other admonishments, unique of the five fornication admonishments in, in, in parental wisdom Proverbs 1 through 9, unique is this one, because this one tells the story. This one, all the other ones say don't fornicate. This one shows um, a knucklehead who does and the trouble he gets into and the seduction that he submits to, the words that she uses that get spelled out. So it's a drama. All right. And uh, passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. Doesn't have to take that way. Why does he go that way? Why did he choose that corner, that street? Didn't have to go that way, but he does. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Four different times. How many times does he have to go by here? How many times has God been gracious? 
Rescued him the first time, she wasn't there. Rescued him the second time, she wasn't there. Rescued him the third time, she wasn't there. So he goes back a fourth time. So is this God's fault? <laughs> who is, who is Pethy going to blame? Well, God, you should have protected me. What happened in this hedge? And the hedge was there the first three times. What are you doing? And behold, a woman comes out to meet him. Oh, fancy meeting you here. What a coincidence. I was just passing by. Yeah, you were. All right, well, let's start here with, ooh, that's not good. Oh, no. Okay. That's an old file. Um, I have 15 minutes left. Let's uh, see if I can get there on Dropbox, maybe. Dan's going to say, yes, I told you. This is why you use Dropbox. Maybe this will be the newest file. I'm not sure what that says. What does that say? Yeah, whatever. All right, how do I get to my slideshow from here? There? There we go. Ha! Okay. It's going to break my heart if I had another blank A. The return of Pethy. <laughs> Pethy returns from chapter 1. And everything we studied in chapter 1, it would be good to review and good to remind ourselves who Pethy is, what Pethy's about. Not Pithy, Pethy. P-E-T-H-I-Y. And uh, two strong concordance numbers, by the way, 6612 and 6615. Um, I just lump all 19 of them together into a symbol. I think it's the same word. Um, but... Psalm 19, 7, Psalm 116, 6, Psalm 119, verse 130, and then a whole slew of times in, uh, in the Proverbs, including uh, the reason why we have Proverbs in our Bible. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4, verse 22, and verse 32, all right? So we'll start with those, just to remind ourselves what we already covered in chapter 1, and then we'll grab the Psalms uh, after that. So Proverbs 1, 4. What is the point of Proverbs? Remember this? The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. In other words, the book of Proverbs has been compiled and given to the reader so that studying Proverbs will do this to you. Studying the book of Proverbs will cause you to know wisdom and instruction. Studying the book of Proverbs will cause you to discern the sayings of understanding. Studying the book of Proverbs will cause you to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. Studying the book of Proverbs will cause the reader to give prudence to the naive, to give to the youth knowledge and discretion. And so there it is. The pethy is there in verse 4. And the pethy needs prudence. The pethy needs prudence. The youth needs knowledge and discretion. And so it's parallelism. Obviously, Pethy also needs knowledge and discretion. The youth also needs prudence. Okay? A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. The, the, the key to wisdom is knowing that you always need more. Never assume that you've got enough or that you're done. The, the, the really wise man realizes how little he knows. All right. 
So to give prudence to the Pethi. That was our first introduction. Down to verse 22. How long, O Pethi ones, the plural of Pethi, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? Now that's, that's a rebuke because, let's face it, we're all Pethi when we get started. Every young one is Pethi. But the point is, you ought to grow out of that. And if you prolong it, because if you enjoy it, or uh, you come to uh, feel as if uh, prolonged naivete is, uh, is a benefit, that nobody expects anything from you, there's no responsibility, uh, well, you know, that's great when you're five, but by now, <laughs> we expect more responsibility from you. All right? And, th- and this is just, I don't know, did you see the, the video of this man that's 50-something years old, but he, he, he thinks he's a six-year-old girl? Okay? He's not just transgender, he is trans-aged. <laughs> because in his mind, in his warped, pathetic, mentally ill delusions, he not only thinks he's female, that's bad enough, Okay? And, and, and it's just, I weep for our culture sometimes. I weep for what they call culture that's not culture. But it's, it's almost sad to call it culture. I weep for our culture, for our society, that there's, there's mentally unbalanced people that are delusional. And it's, it, we used to call them delusional. That if you, if you believe something that's not true, you're insane, that reality conforms to what's real. It's reality. It's what con- truth is what conforms to reality. But now you can create your own reality. And if you think you're a woman, you're a woman. And it's not you're not just delusional or insane. You're whatever. Okay. And so now the step beyond that, we well, get that. That's the Bruce Jenner insanity. That's a, you know put them on a Wheaties box and and be be the woman of the year or whatever. For but now not only do you think you're a woman, but you think you're a woman of a younger age. Specifically, a six-year-old little girl. Because six-year-olds, life is good when you're six, okay? There's no responsibility. You're not paying rent. You don't have bills. You don't, no one expects anything of you. And you can just wear dresses and play with dolls and have fun. Have little tea parties with the other girls in the neighborhood. (laughs) You're a 56-year-old man. You have kids and grandkids. Grow up. Wake up. Adjust your thinking to reality. All right, it's a simpler, I don't know, maybe I should have been born in the 50s. You know, when, when life was simpler and you just slap somebody upside the head and say, get real, okay? How did I get onto that? Okay, but Pethy, are you going to prolong your childhood? How long, oh naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge? See, that news story wasn't around when I taught Proverbs chapter 1. But how long? Do you want to prolong your naivete? It's one thing. It's one thing. I mean, how long are you going to love being simple-minded? And some people are just by personality naturally gullible, but they don't crave it. They're not happy to be simple. They're hoping to learn eventually. But if you deliberately prolong your ignorance because you love being simple, God hasn't designed his word for that. We're supposed to grow beyond that. So twice it's used there in verse 22 and then again in verse 32. The waywardness of the pethy will kill them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. Now, the simple-minded years are, are great while they last, but get over them, okay? And honestly, we, we like them when the kids are small, but it's also nice when they grow up. Okay, we can come to appreciate that. So that was our introduction to Pethy. This is his first return since chapter 1, is in 7-7. He'll be coming back in chapter 8, in verse 5. Pethy makes another encore performance in 8-5. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. Chapter 9, verse 4, verse 6, verse 13, verse 16. Wisdom is calling out. Wisdom is sending out her maidens. She calls from the top of the heights. 
Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come, eat of my food, drink of the wine I have mixed. All right, this is a great dinner, supper call, right? Supper time. Come, the meal's ready. And it's quite a contrast to what the the harlot's shouting in the streets. She says, come, let's have fun, let's fornicate. My husband's out of town. We, We got the, you know, we can... We can do whatever. Wisdom is calling to Pethy, saying, you need me. And, and, and really it comes down to who are we going to listen to, the harlot or wisdom? Uh, so that's verse 4, verse 6. Forsake your folly and live. Proceed in the way of understanding. Yeah, that imperative to live means we've got to grow out of our Pethy. Proceed in the way of understanding. Verse 13, the woman of folly is boisterous. She is pethy and knows nothing. That's why she picks on the pethy for her victims, because that's what she is. Verse 16, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. (laughs) You know, they're not usually that blunt about it. Might as well be. To him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Oh, come on, it'll be fun. Pethy comes back in chapter 14, verse 15 and verse 18. The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. There's a contrast for you. You know the, uh, the, the newest, the 2016 Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, they took the word gullible out of the dictionary. They did? All right. For the benefit of anyone listening on MP3, I will not name the person who said they did. All right. That's pethy, okay? That's why I miss my mom, my mother. I could, on every April Fool's Day, I could get my mother a minimum of three times, sometimes four, all on the same day. And you would think after the first one, okay, the first one you might forget it's April 1st, right? Because you might think it's still March or whatever. But then after the first one, you're on the alert. You know it's April 1st. You know it's April Fool's Day. And so then you go get her a second time. Then you go get her a third time. All right. Uh, Chapter 19. Chapter 19 and verse 25. Strike a scoffer, and the naive may become shrewd. But reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. The whole point to being naive, everybody's naive to start, but you've got to grow out of it. <laughs> the Word of God will take us out of it. 21.11, when the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. 22.3, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. That's why the naive should have gotten some prudence and he wouldn't have been there. Finally, uh, 27.12, a prudent man sees evil and hides himself, the naive proceed and pay the penalty. So there's all our Proverbs uses, and then the three in Psalms, before we run out of time. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the pethy, the simple. 116. In verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. And I don't you know, claim that verse, claim that as a promise, be thankful for it, but don't use that then as a, as a cop-out or as an excuse to just go ahead and stay pethy your whole life and the Lord will take care of you. No, yeah, he'll take care of you. He'll give you doctrine so you grow up and he'll get you through that. You need to live long enough to, to get to a stage of wisdom. And then uh, finally, Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the pethy. Figures that pethy would show up in the pay strophe of uh, 
Psalm 119. Well, there we have it. All right. Well, we'll talk about uh, how he lacks sense. Talk about chaser and the lack of a uh, fractured soul in a small heart, lacking sense. And, uh, and then her. Okay, we'll pick up on this next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. We have next week is the 23rd and the 30th. We have two more Wednesdays in, uh, in the year, and then we'll have a break starting in January. But we got next week and the week after, two more classes here in Proverbs 7. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for opening our eyes to scriptures. Thank you for um, helping us grow, Father, so we don't stay pethy in, uh, in our uh, Christian walk. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.